This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. We have something special for you, a look back at a civil rights victory and what it means today. While the country was swept up in a movement for equality in the 60s and 70s, a small group of people transformed a rural community in southern Colorado. What's remarkable about this particular town isn't just how it changed, though. It also reveals how power, once you have it, can change everything. CPR's Nathaniel Miner has the story. The civil rights era is most identified with the men who led it. That's as true in Colorado as it is anywhere else in America. But just recently, I got to know this woman. She's in her 80s now. Jenny Sanchez is petite with short, neat gray hair. She has an endearing smile, and she lived through some serious discrimination. We had segregated classrooms up to fourth grade. We had a segregated Catholic church, and and we were treated like second-class citizens. It was the 1960s, and things were bad for Hispanics everywhere in Colorado. Toward the end of the decade, protests picked up among Chicanos of all ages. On Thursday, March 20, 9 a.m. at West High School, approximately 150 to 200 students staged a walk-off in protest of alleged racist remarks made by a teacher at that school. In Denver, there were activists like Corky Gonzalez. The young people and especially the Chicano group across the nation is starting to uh, recognize the inequities in the school system and helping them to identify with themselves and uh, their contributions and their heritage and their culture. This stuff wasn't just in the big city. Jenny Sanchez lived quite a ways from Denver. She's from a small, dusty farming town called Center in southern Colorado. And I met Jenny because she co-wrote a book about the movement she led in Center to change things for her people, who she calls Mexicanos. And I was really taken by her story of what Jenny and her friends had to do on a much smaller scale than the big civil rights icons, but with the same goals, to get control of their lives and their people's futures. But what this small group of activists has done with that power ever since is just as interesting. Because as it turns out, while it's a story about confronting racism, even today, it's also about what happens when those without power get it and don't let go. The city is called Center because it's pretty much in the middle of the San Luis Valley. This part of southern Colorado is high in the mountains, hours from any major city. It's flatland, though, with thousands of acres of farm fields and a handful of tiny towns tucked between. If you looked at it today on a satellite map, Center is a tiny blip in the middle of hundreds of crop circles that are then surrounded by mountains. The first time I went to Center last winter, Jenny Sanchez introduced me to a bunch of other people who explained what it was like for Mexicanos growing up here 60 years ago. Dave Pacheco told me he once took an Anglo girl on a date to a pool outside of town. And she had never been swimming in a swimming pool, and I wasn't allowed in. That was probably the most embarrassing time in my life. And I've lived a long life. I'm 80 years old. <laughs> I don't know if she understood what happened, but I certainly did. What did happen was this. The pool only allowed people like Pacheco in one day a week, only on the day before they cleaned it. That afternoon was the last time I saw her, because I went out. I used to herd sheep, and I went up to the high country for the summer, came back, and they had moved away. Segregation was a part of everyday life, like at the movie theater. Chicano sat on one side, Anglo sat on another side, and if you dare cross that, they asked you to leave. 
That's another woman who still lives in town, Adeline Sanchez. Families like hers and Jenny Sanchez's only lived on the east side of town. For the longest time, we didn't have electricity in this center. We didn't have inside plumbing, and West Center had it. Jenny told me there was another little enclave of Mexicanos in one corner of center, and they called it Chinatown. Their eyes were slanted, and it was the Anglos that named it Chinatown. But that's how deep that racism, because nothing was better than just white. This valley used to be part of Mexico. That's why some families here, like Jenny's, call themselves Mexicano or Chicano instead of Hispanic. While there are some new Mexican immigrants in the valley now, many of the old Mexicano families there have been citizens since the Mexican-American War. A lot of Mexicanos worked in the fields, centers in the breadbasket of the San Luis Valley. So these Mexicano farm workers would do things like thin lettuce. And not just adults, but kids too. Audrey Chavez was only about 12 years old when she went out there to pick lettuce. You didn't have anywhere to drink water and to use the bathroom. You had to find some place, you know, where you could hide from all the crews so they wouldn't see you. And conditions were really bad, and I think a lot of people were getting really frustrated because uh, you worked a lot and you weren't making very much money. They made about $1.35 an hour. And clearly, that was a long time ago. It'd be a little over $8 an hour today. Still, though, that's less than minimum wage. Jenny Sanchez grew up in the middle of this back in the 1940s and 50s. She worked at a store in town and saw things year after year growing up that she didn't like. But as she told it to me, there was this one moment in particular that made her do something about it. There was an incident that happened right here in town in center. Some uh, Mexicano man was walking down the street, and this Anglo young girl was in a bicycle. And he wouldn't move off. And he was arrested. Jenny says the Mexicano guy on foot was arrested because he wouldn't yield to an Anglo girl. And that was pure discrimination to Jenny. Her family talked about La Discriminación at home, and not just what they saw in center, but stuff they read about in newspapers from New Mexico and Denver. I, when they were talking about discussing that issue at my grandmother's house, she looked at me and she said, Jenny, don't ever let anybody do that to you. She took her grandmother's words to heart. It was Jenny's political awakening. She wasn't going to spend her life getting pushed around. She developed a conviction that powered her activism for decades. But as I'd find out later, it could get her into trouble, too. Coming up, Jenny Sanchez sets her sights on the all-white political establishment in center. With Nathaniel Miner, I'm Ryan Warner, and this is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. CPR's Nathaniel Miner today has a story about power and politics in small-town Colorado. Hispanics, or Mexicanos, have faced blatant discrimination throughout the Southwest, including here. And back in the 1960s and 70s, a woman named Jenny Sanchez decided she wanted to change things in her corner of the world, a tiny San Luis Valley community called Center. 
Jenny Sanchez had a political awakening when her grandmother told her not to put up with racism. And she took that seriously. She grew up and got married and got involved in local politics. In the early 60s, she and her husband decided he'd run for a town board. And he won by two votes. He was the first Mexicano elected in center. But, you know, that's always a token Mexicano because you have no power. Her husband didn't have any power because he wasn't part of the majority. So Jenny became an organizer. She put together a whole slate of Mexicano candidates for town board in 1970. So they'd have actual power. It was a combination of a lot of people saying, ya basta. Ya basta. Enough is enough. Remarkably, given the city's history, Mexicanos won five of the six seats on the board. Every Hispanic candidate that ran won. It was a shock. No longer do we have a town where everybody knows where their place is and nobody crosses the line. Shelley Wittavrangel was a nun in center. She struck up a lifelong friendship and admiration for Jenny Sanchez. This was an amazing occurrence. It was a very powerful moment. Things didn't change overnight. Winning an election was just the beginning because the establishment still wasn't ready to let them into leadership, wasn't ready to hear what the Mexicanos had to say. But the political victory spurred on Jenny's side. They wanted better pay for farm workers and better education so the discrimination wouldn't continue to the next generation. Mexicanos worked the thousands of acres of potatoes and lettuce that surround center. They were the engine of the agricultural economy. And as we heard earlier, they didn't get much for it. So they decided to strike. But when they tried to organize in a church basement, the Anglo Parish Council locked them out of the church. They found a chain on the door, and they didn't know what to do. Shelley Wittavrangel and another nun named Sister Alice helped them. And they talked to Sister Alice and asked, Sister, what should we do? And she said, do you have bolt cutters? They cut their way into the church basement so they could plan this lettuce strike. They weren't going to take no for an answer. They also got help from outside the valley, from Cesar Chavez's group in California. And they got Corky Gonzalez, that political activist from Denver, to come down for a march. But as the strikers walked through the main street on the east side of town... There was people literally on top of the buildings and in the school with, with rifles. Local people, deputized by law enforcement, they stood on top of the high school and the other buildings downtown to intimidate the Mexicano marchers. But it didn't work. By the end of the summer, the strikers decided to march all the way from Pueblo to Denver with a much bigger group. I got footage of the march from an old newsreel. So far, the march has been going rather slow, 15 or 16 miles per day. The reporter is standing on the side of the highway with this group of activists walking into the distance. Most are Chicano. The group plans to be at Thomas Jefferson High School in Denver Saturday evening. Then they will form at the state capitol grounds on Sunday for a mass rally. Jim Bosch, Channel 4 Eyewitness News. It looks like there must have been a hundred of them or more. They're climbing the steps and carrying United farm worker flags and Mexican flags. This march got them a lot of attention. All of a sudden, the plight of the farm worker in Colorado was front page news. And the workers in center got a little bit of a raise, too. Jenny Sanchez's role in this wasn't to be at the front of the march holding a banner. She prefers to be behind the scenes. Did you ever run for office? Never. 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 Why not? I felt like um, 
I felt like if I did it, was, then it, was, it would come be, be about me. And it wasn't about me. It was about us. Jenny's strength was getting people into the right position and encouraging them. We've all been active. We've all worked hard together. This is Mary McClure. She's been Jenny's friend for decades. But Jenny is our leader. It worked with the lettuce strike and the town board election. Jenny Sanchez's efforts empowered other Mexicanos, like Audrey Chavez. I think she's been the monarch. Um, She has this uh, great instinct for justice, and she's been able to help a lot of people here in town. Remember, Chavez was 12, working in the fields. And this strike helped her realize that she didn't have to do that anymore. Jenny helped change the whole course of Audrey's life. I went to school, and and I've been the housing authority director for 32 years and been able to make a big difference here in the community, and that was where lasting effects from the strike. Jenny's victories may not make it into Colorado's history books, but notable Hispanic figures know about them. People like Federico Pena. He was the first Hispanic mayor of Denver back in the 1980s. He knew Jenny before that, when he was a civil rights attorney early in his career. Jenny was, and is, an inspiration to him. Where some people have given up and say, my voice doesn't count, I say to them, go meet Jenny Sanchez. I'm going to see what one person can do. Your voice does count. Her voice reverberated, not just throughout the San Luis Valley, but throughout the state. Forcing change wasn't easy. It took careful planning to get these victories, and some sharp elbows too. That made them more than a few enemies along the way. Cheap labor had kept a lot of landowners in business. The Anglos had their choices of where to live in town. They had control over everything before the Mexicanos, led by Jenny, started upsetting all of that in the early 1970s. I talked to a white couple who was around back then. And they described how Mexicanos got more emboldened, particularly after the lettuce strike. Bob Felmley is in his 80s now, and he farmed just outside of town for decades. I'll tell you one thing that happened. I was irrigating the potatoes over here one morning. And little kids, Mexican kids, who were going to the fields where their parents were working. And they would go by with doing this. The kids were flipping him off. They were taught you know, to hate us, basically. Instead of trying to work things together and work it out. Bob and his wife, Betty, grew up in center. From their point of view, race relations were just fine before Jenny Sanchez and others started organizing. Here's Betty. We got along. We didn't have any problems at all when I was going to school. And that, of course, was back in... When did I graduate? (laughs) In the 50s. Yeah. Uh, do you think they were they were taught well? Did they receive a good education? The ones in my class did. They all went out, uh, out, graduated, went to college. Yes, they all had a good education. Despite Betty's recollection, historical data doesn't support that. Mexicano kids started out doing as well as Anglo kids in first grade, but their test scores dropped every year after that. Jenny knew this even back when she was still a kid herself. She fought for her little brother to keep him out of a remedial class that other Mexicano kids were put in. It was literally under the stairs at the school. One school board member said this, why educate Mexicans when we need them to work in the farms and the warehouses? That was their motive. 
Jenny says that's why the school board resisted when the state tried to require them to educate kids in English and Spanish. It was the mid-70s by now. The state recognized that Hispanic kids everywhere weren't doing well compared with white kids. The issue pitted Jenny against Bob Femley. He was on the school board and led the charge against bilingual education in center. And this fight was intense. It was 40 years ago, but Bob's wife Betty remembers one school board meeting very clearly still. I was sitting right behind Jenny Sanchez. She turned around to me and said, I hope he dies. Now that doesn't make you feel very good. I mean, you know, that hurts. There was a meeting, apparently, a school board meeting, um, where you were in the audience and you said, uh, I hope you die. I never said that. Never. Never said that. Never in my life said that. I was very confrontive at times, but I never, never said that. I can't tell you what really happened at that meeting. But the way that Jenny describes herself, confrontive, that's her style. When she didn't get her way with the school board, she took on the state capitol. Adeline Sanchez and the others eagerly climbed on board. We left center at times at 11 o'clock in the snowstorm. 11 o'clock at night. And my husband thought that we were nuts. Mm-hmm. <laughs> More than once they drove all night to lobby lawmakers. And just think for a minute about what these activists did. They fought the most powerful people in their community to get their kids educated. And before that, they had to educate themselves about really complex policies. Still, they weren't always taken seriously once they got to the Capitol. When you come from a very small town in Colorado, and you're going to this ornate building with a gold dome on top, with marble halls. Federico Pena knows a thing or two about politics and power in Colorado. And you're walking in there to testify for the first time in your life. It is an absolutely frightening experience. Now, what makes it worse is where you're going into a hostile hearing. (laughs) That's treacherous. At times when I got up to speak, if there hadn't been a podium... I wouldn't have been able to stand there. Pena says now, decades later, he still thinks about what those center activists did to fight for their children's future. I learned from them. Um, I learned what was really true to be the true meaning of courage because I didn't have to live in center. I would would be in center and then I'd come back to Denver. They had to stay there. They had to suffer the consequences of their courage, of their activism, and they did. Consequences, because the fight over bilingual education was vicious— A superintendent sympathetic to Jenny's cause had a death threat spray-painted on his home. White parents took their kids out of the center school and sent them to a neighboring district. But the fight paid off. The school eventually did start to serve its Hispanic students better. And even more importantly, in the long run, this group of Mexicano activists took hold of town government. It was the late 80s by then. Jenny had put the pieces together, one by one, over nearly two decades. They finally had the power to make decisions for themselves. Self-liberation. Self-liberation. We are not going to be treated as as second-class citizens. I'm I'm old and I'm having trouble with words. And that we're going to be served with respect. I think to add to self-liberation is in what we all did with our children. We educated them, and they're not ever going to bow to any person that wants to put them down either. So that's a lot of progress. Okay, 
Nate, I can see why you were so taken by this story, as told in the book that Jenny Sanchez co-wrote. This book got all these people now in their 80s to share their memories before it's too late. Uh, And it's sort of a blueprint for huge cultural change. That story is basically the story of Center laid out in Jenny's book. I said goodbye to her last winter and drove back to Denver. I listened back to all their voices and wrote up the story. I was ready to publish it. And then I found out about this. What you're doing right now is you're harassing them. Okay? So I'm giving you one opportunity. I'm giving you one opportunity to get in your vehicle and to leave. This is body cam footage from a police officer in center. It's from just last summer. The woman he's talking to is one of Jenny's allies, Audrey Chavez. She got in trouble with law enforcement. And that was a little crack in the armor of Jenny's group. A signal to me that things hadn't ended the way Jenny and the others had described. The history book she co-wrote, it ends with just a few pages about life in center these days. But once I started digging, I found out much more about power and politics in this small town and what happened when a small group of activists took control and wouldn't let go. CPR's Nathaniel Miner. See photographs and more from Center at CPR.org. You're hearing music from Poddington Bear. The rest of the story tomorrow. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Former congressional candidate Syra Rao says she's leaving the state with her kids because it's not safe for them here. She lost her bid last month to unseat Denver's longtime congresswoman. Rao says she's been receiving threats after she shared an op-ed last week on Twitter. The headline was, Should I Give Up on White People? Rao, who's Indian-American, answered, Yes. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much. Are you leaving for good? No, no, no. It's It just doesn't feel safe in the moment. I suspect that, and I hope that it will pass. You know, I've spent a majority of my life in Virginia, New York, and Colorado, and white supremacy exists in all places. And so I'm under no delusion that going somewhere else is going to protect me uh, from racism. Tell us more about why you're leaving, the nature of these threats. I understand you've uh, filed a police report. Yep. I just met with the police, talked to the FBI, who suggested that I do file the formal police report. And so the nature of the threats, I mean, you can go to my Instagram, you can go to any of my social media. The thing that has sort of bothered me more than anything is a lot of this stuff is coming up on pictures of my kids and saying things like, you know, remember white people own a lot of guns, you should consider suicide, calling me all sorts of names that I can't even say right now out loud. And to see those comments placed on top of my daughter's head is really, really concerning and scary. Have the threats uh, been only on social media? Have there been calls or anything uh, sort social, of physically? Social, social media, mostly. You know, when Breitbart comes for you, they come hard. And um, lots of stuff all over Breitbart's social media. It's just really, really hateful, disgusting things that I wish I could say I'm shocked. I'm not. But like the fury, the fast and furious nature of the comments have been very alarming to us. Uh, yes, the story of your tweet has been picked up uh, by, among others, The Roots, also Breitbart. And on Breitbart, I note that some of the folks beneath the story have commented, give up on white people? Great. Take the first available flight back to India. 
You you oh, are yeah. you totally. are Indian American, but I believe you were born here. I was born here, yeah. yes. But, uh, but. An, another comment says, give up on white people sounds like a racist most definitely. Uh, is it racist to have said, yes, I'm giving up on white people? Uh, just pro tip, it's literally impossible for brown and black people to be racist. Like, reverse racism is not a thing. And when I say I give up on white people, what I said is just like it is incumbent upon men to dismantle misogyny. Women cannot do that. It's you literally, we literally cannot do that. It is incumbent upon white people to dismantle white supremacy. Black and brown people cannot do that. We've been toiling and toiling and toiling, and it's still there, as we see, really powerful white supremacy. We can't dismantle it. We cannot dismantle it. White people have to dismantle it. That's what I said in terms of giving up on white people. The Times opinion piece you shared, Should I Give Up on White People, was by George Yancey, an African-American philosopher at Emory University. And uh, he doesn't expressly answer his own question in the piece, but he wrote it after receiving threats himself for an earlier article he penned called Dear White America, which asked white readers to examine the comforts that come with being white and how that same comfort causes pain for people of color. I think that some will hear uh, what you just said there, which is that people of color cannot be racist, and uh, they may bristle against that. Care to expound? No, I don't. All right. Have you reported some of the social media threats to Twitter, I wonder, and uh, has the company perhaps done anything about it? Um, No, and I know other people have. I mean, just bear in mind, this has all happened in the past 24 hours, and so I'm just trying to trying to manage everything, get my family organized, and talking to reporters now about what's going on. I mean, I do want to take sort of a macro view, though, of what happened. Um, it's not just me, right? This is sort of white supremacy playbook. This is white supremacy 101. And Michael Harriet, who's the author at The Root, I talked to him yesterday, and he said he gets death threats all the time to the point where it's like, as he put it, no pun intended, white noise. Um, and so people have to hear this stuff. People have to see this stuff. Like we are human beings. We are human beings who are calling out institutional oppression. And so when you call out institutional oppression, when you call out white supremacy, when you call out racism, that's not racist. You're, you're actually calling out racism. And so by calling me a racist, that is a silencing tactic. These people want me to go away. These people want Michael Harriet to go away. They want us to go away just like they wanted MLK to go away and Malcolm X to go away and Rosa Parks to go away. Nothing has changed. And so here's a scenario of a brown woman running for Congress in a hyper white um, district in an overwhelmingly white state and running on an anti-racist platform. I want to be clear that the majority of racism that I experienced during the campaign came from Democrats. And came from the Democratic Party. How do you know and that? Because I was there. It was at like party meetings and stuff. I'm glad but, you mentioned the congressional race. Are you giving up on white people, so to speak, and and tweeting that out as a result of your loss in the primary? No, 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 no. I've been, I've been. I mean, go check my social feeds. I've been talking about race and supremacy for years. This is nothing new. I think of the campaign of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, uh, which she ran in New York successfully. Yep, yep. Yeah, very similar to yours. She won, though, on seating a more traditional Democrat. Uh-huh. Uh, isn't that a sign that th- these types of victories are possible? With, uh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, this situation of 
experiencing racism throughout the campaign. And you should talk to Alexandria. She's been threatened a ton. You know, Queens is a very different district from Denver. But bear in mind, she had 10 extra months, right? And she accomplished, I mean, she's an amazing person. Um, She won with less than 16,000 votes with 10 extra months. In 20 weeks, with no name ID, no corporate money, we got nearly 43,000 votes. That tells me that people are ready for a change. A fellow Democrat, a Colorado State Representative Paul Rosenthal, uh, tweeted, I disagree with Syra. If we aren't united across all races to work against racism and celebrate diversity, we can't succeed. As bold progressives, if we splinter and snipe at each other, racists will not get the message they need to change. To have a white man publicly shoot down a brown woman talking about racism is the dictionary definition of racism. And yet, isn't he a, a, an ally in your fight in, in some regards? He's not, he's not an ally of mine. Do you plan to run for office again? Um, I don't know. I think anything's possible right now. No, absolutely not. But I certainly am not going to stop talking about race and white supremacy and, and oppression. What do you want white people to do? I want white people to listen, to just listen to what we're saying and not be fragile and not take it personally and not get defensive. Change happens when you listen. And, and it's a very easy, actionable item. Just listen. Syra, thank you for being with us. Thank you, Ryan. Syra Rao of Denver lost the Democratic primary this year in Colorado's first congressional district. She says she's leaving the state temporarily because of threats against her family. They came after a tweet she sent of an op-ed piece titled, Should I Give Up on White People? It's not often states get a chance to take part in a new $150 billion industry. But that's what happened when the U.S. Supreme Court ruled states could legalize sports betting. A lot of interests in Colorado want a piece of the action, and there are fears it could get messy. CPR's business reporter Ben Marcus has more. Inside the Celtic Bar in downtown Denver, things are quiet before the World Cup matches start. Noel Hickey, the owner, says it's going to get crazy in here later. And he can't help but imagine the possibilities if his customers could also place a bet on England to win it all. You know, it would be great if we could if we could manage to get um, the sports book in as well and, and just add to uh, everything that we've already done. He has off-track betting here. People can place wagers on the horses downstairs. Hickey's Bar, the horse track in Aurora, the casinos in Blackhawk, fantasy operators like DraftKings, they all want in on sports gambling in Colorado. But now it's time for a buzzkill. David Farahi runs Monarch Casino in Blackhawk. Everybody's going to try to put... uh, their hand in the cookie jar. What I can tell you most people don't understand is that that cookie jar is not filled with giant cookies. It's filled with crumbs. Farahi spoke with us from his casino in Reno, where he operates a sports book. He says profit margins are extremely low, less than 5%. And so that will, I think, temper people's appetite for a huge fight. He's referring to the fact that different gaming factions in Colorado have not always played nice in the past. In 2014, casinos fought back the horse tracks attempt to expand gaming outside the mountain towns. It was one of the most expensive political battles in state history. The operator of the track did not respond to repeated requests for comment. 
That's the kind of fight that Democratic State Representative Alec Garnett hopes to avoid this upcoming legislative session. It's super confusing, super messy, super expensive. So I think the best way is to come together, let's figure out what we believe is the right balance, and then let's go ask the voters, do we think this is going to work? Voters approved Colorado casinos through an amendment to the Constitution 25 years ago, allowing gaming in only three historic mountain towns, Blackhawk, Central City, and Cripple Creek. Some believe, though, that sports gambling can be allowed without voter approval. Colorado's attorney general will weigh in with a formal opinion in the coming weeks. Still, Cole Wist, a state House Republican, thinks a voter referendum could be likely. I think it's logical, particularly if you're talking about expanding it beyond the three towns or – and the question of a mobile interface may – give rise to a related question about whether or not that's truly consistent with the language of the constitutional amendment. Wist says Garnett beat him to the punch by like 20 minutes in getting a bill started on sports gambling for next session. They're friends and they'll work together on it. That idea of mobile betting is no small one. Nevada already has apps for that kind of thing. And illegal offshore betting is happening now online all over the country. Garnett says in that environment, mobile bets make sense. If something happens on Sunday morning, uh, a weather system moves in and the Broncos are going to be playing in six inches of snow, the line's going to move and it would be unrealistic to expect somebody to drive up to Blackhawk or Central City and change that bet that they made a couple days before. So if that requires a constitutional change, here's the way it could play out. The legislature starts in January. If two-thirds of lawmakers agree, a measure would be referred to the ballot for November of 2019. Tom Downey is a lawyer who's worked at the state and city level regulating vice industries like gambling and marijuana. He says referred measures are more likely to pass, but then there will be rulemaking got to fill in the details and get it up and running. Um, Lightning speed would be January 1st of 2020. 2020, before the first sports bets are made in Colorado. That's assuming there aren't a host of legal challenges that delay the first bets even longer. In the meantime, New Jersey and Delaware are already up and running. But David Farahi, who runs the Monarch Casino, says he's in no rush. Colorado not being first is probably advantageous for Colorado. He says Pennsylvania's recently passed sports gambling legislation is a bit of a mess. He doesn't think many operators will choose the state. Most people seem to agree that as opposed to marijuana, Colorado can actually learn from the mistakes of other states. I'm Ben Marcus, CPR News. More than 20 states are suing pharmaceutical companies, arguing they willfully contributed to the opioid crisis. Colorado's Attorney General, Cynthia Kaufman, has so far declined to take part, though. In November, however, Coloradans will choose a new attorney general. And CPR's justice reporter, Allison Sherry, tells us both candidates believe opioids should be a priority. Republican candidate George Brockler and Democratic candidate Phil Weiser both talk passionately about the opioid crisis in Colorado. Both talk about trying to be creative in the job they're angling for to solve that crisis. Here is Brockler. This is going to take a holistic approach for the better part of a generation to try to curb this. In his current job as Arapahoe County District Attorney, Brockler says he has already started working on the problem. Just uh, last week, we helped an effort that would encourage more trained professionals voluntarily to go into homes to help provide resources, guidance, counseling to families that are potentially in crisis. But asked about whether he will join other states in suing pharmaceutical companies, Brockler was less committal. 
He believes the tobacco lawsuit, which settled and sent hundreds of millions of dollars to states, was beneficial. But Brockler says he doesn't believe in, quote, litigating his way out of the problem. In the wrong hands, attorneys general across this country can link hands and go after an industry or a business and bring them to their knees. It's a super responsibility for an attorney general to have, and I take it very, very seriously. More than a dozen Colorado counties have already sued or intend to sue pharmaceutical companies because they allege the opioid epidemic has ravaged their communities. Democratic AG candidate Phil Weiser says he wouldn't hesitate to throw the whole state behind that effort. They're pharmaceutical companies who have deceived consumers, who have made a lot of money and who've destroyed lives. They need to be held accountable. Weiser served in the Obama administration's Justice Department. He says the entire criminal justice system in Colorado and elsewhere focuses too much on putting drug users in jail, including those on heroin and opioids. Weiser recently visited the Alamosa jail, where more than 90 percent of inmates are addicted to drugs, but the community has very few treatment options. He says a potential settlement payout could help places like that. And this settlement with the pharmaceutical companies will become a catalyzing point. And what we need to make sure we do is not just allow this money to be used up quickly to plug a hole in the budget, but it has to be the catalyst for long-term change in how we address opioids and opioid users. Weiser and Brockler both agree something must be done to address the opioid epidemic devastating Colorado, particularly its rural areas. But the way each man would approach the problem is likely to be dramatically different, points that will become even more clear on the campaign trail this summer and fall. I'm Allison Sherry, CPR News. There's a coffee mug with the image of a unicorn farting, along with the words, electric cars are good for the environment because electricity comes from magic. Tom Edwards, who's a potter in Evergreen, has been selling this mug for years. It's his cartoon on it. Well, the billionaire CEO of Tesla, which makes electric cars, liked the drawing so much that it appeared on that company's new Sketchpad app, but without the artist's consent. Tom, welcome to the show. Yeah, hi. Thanks for having me. Any idea how Elon Musk caught onto your artwork in the first place? I don't know how he got the mug, but I know he tweeted it back in February of 2017, and that's when I first heard that he had my mug. An image of the mug? Yeah, yeah. It was, it was one of his tweets, and I got a nice bump in sales out of it. Okay, and then you learn that this image shows up in this Sketchpad app. Exactly where does it show up? Okay, it's it's a, they call it an Easter egg. It's like a hidden icon, and so if you tap the T on the, the screen three times, it shows up. Oh, in the car? It's in the car. It's in all the Tesla cars, and so it also showed up on like a Christmas card last December 25th that they sent out. And a friend of mine who has a new model uh, Tesla 3, actually, it's the first thing she saw when she turned on her car for the first time. Huh. Is that how you found out about it? Well, I found out about it when he when he tweeted the new Sketchpad app back in uh, uh, 2017 in March. And I got another bump in sales. And I, I talked to a friend of mine who was a lawyer. And I said, hey, this is a copy of my artwork. What should I do? And he said, well, you really can't fight these people. Don't don't worry about it. So uh, as the year went on, I decided to do something about it. You did indeed. You had a, a letter written by an attorney asking for what exactly? Yeah, I've spent the last six months basically working this problem, finding an attorney, trying to figure out what's the best way to do it. The standard way is to take them to court, and, and that costs a lot of money, and artists such as myself do not want to invest that kind of money in it. So I found a real good lawyer, uh, Tim Atkinson, who is 
Actually, he just simply sent them a letter uh, a month ago. Uh, we sent them a letter saying, "Look, this isn't a shakedown. We don't want to. We don't want to. We're not these opportunists. We really want to just get acknowledged for this, and we want to get fair compensation for the artwork that you're using in your car." Fair compensation. I'll ask you in just a bit what that means to you. Um, but what? Did you hear, if anything, from the company? We, an entire month went by, and they did not respond. In fact, Tim kept sending letters, and they just ignored us, uh, completely ignored us for a month. So I, then I went to the media. You went to the media. And you had some help from your daughter as well, I yeah. understand, it, because your daughter is a musician named Lisa Prank, and she's got, like, a decent... Twitter following. Yeah, she's a verified Twitter account, which means it's kind of like the cool people on Twitter that if a verified person tweets something, other verified people can act. Like if I tweet somebody famous, they don't hear me. But if Lisa Prank tweets, people listen. And indeed, she engaged with Elon Musk. Honestly, originally, I really didn't expect him to respond. Um, And I'm kind of shocked that he did and that he's going through his mentions on Twitter late at night that much. But um, I feel like he responded in a really condescending and dismissive way that dismisses the value of artists' work. Apparently, Musk's tweets have since been deleted, and he blocked your daughter on Twitter. But tell us briefly about the interaction. I think you have a printout of it. There. Yeah, it was it was really an amazing situation because she was actually out here, and we were driving to the airport, and she goes, oh, my God, uh, he responded to my tweet. And so that led to about a day of them interacting and discussing this issue on Twitter, which was amazing. I mean, it, it really showed... Uh, Elon Musk's how he approaches this thing, and he was fairly cavalier about um, about uh, how he felt about my my copyright uh, situation. Quote one tweet for us. Well, uh, he he said he, uh, at first he was actually fairly friendly, but towards the end he got pretty cocky about it. And here's one that he, he wrote. He goes, Lisa, I popular, popularized your dad's mug for free. He made thousands of dollars as a result. And now he wants more money because someone else's drawing of that mug was used as a sketchpad example of a, quote, hidden feature. How much money does your want for your dad want for this terrible transgression? Uh, does he have a point? I mean, you help... Yeah, under you copyright help law, no. He no. does not have a point. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I have a copyright on that image. It's a direct copy. It's copyright 101. And what I love is that Lisa Prank schooled Elon Musk on the basics of copyright. We tweeted at Elon Musk ourselves, but haven't heard back. We have also reached out to Tesla for response. No word yet. Uh, some of Musk's followers accused you of being... A money grabber here. What is it? What is it you want? What do you I, think is a is a is a fair amount? And uh, how I do you res- respond to some first of those? First of all, I resent the term money grabber. Uh, they're the ones that grabbed my artwork, and it's it's just so basic that uh, they should have asked permission, and they, and they should have written up a contract and made me an offer. And it's really simple copyright law. Mm-hmm. Um, and so th- where we are now is uh, I have the option to take them to the court, and I could if I want to. But we're hoping to do this. See, I kind of thought when I started this whole process that. Elon Musk, Tesla, they like to go outside the box. Let's just send them a letter, get a reasonable compensation and move on because I want it to stay in their car. I think it's not like a, you know, we're not we're not asking for a ton of money. I can't discuss amounts of money. Uh, my lawyer is involved in negotiating with their lawyers right now so that the lawyers are communicating. I'm optimistic. But right now, uh, the the amount of money is not uh, is not part of the discussion. Will you describe the farting unicorn for us? Sure. It's a picture in Ron it's, Radio. It's a great 
great one because it was really actually kind of a little bit of a dig at people who don't know where electricity comes from. Um, it it uh, it has a, a rainbow, happy faces, a unicorn passing gas into a funnel. The funnel goes down to an electric car, and the car is uh, that's how that's where the power comes from. And when did you create this? Back in 2010. I mean, it's it's been a staple seller in my line. I, I've been making pottery for, for a living for 40 years, and I do car- funny cartoons on pots, and that's been one of our staple sellers for a long time. Do you see this as a David versus Goliath type oh, story? very much so. And, uh-huh. and, and what I like about it is it's really, and, and since I've, I brought this story out, it's really resonating with artists because there's so many stories like this, and they don't have a, a sexy story about a farting unicorn and, and a guy like Elon Musk that actually you know, shows the chutzpah of, of a CEO who thinks that exposure is simply payment for artwork. I mean, artists need to get paid, and that's my message. I think what you're saying is there are many artists who deal with this, but the circumstances aren't quite as headline-grabbing, aren't quite as they sexy. What, what have you yeah. heard from other artists? They've reached out? Oh, it's yeah, I, I got a really great response from various people. And I think the problem is, is that we need to educate uh, these corporations as to what copyright law is. And, and and again, this is such a good example of the fact that they don't really even see it. I hope now that I've educated them that they're going to say, okay, right, he's right. Let's 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 settle with his lawyer and, and move on. I really hope that happens because I'm going to be tenacious if they don't settle with us. Would you like to hear from Elon Musk? Do you, do you want, in addition to some compensation has, for your work, like a formal apology or a statement? I don't made? need a formal apology. I just need a, a contract and a, and a check. But uh, And I don't really want to get into some... It's such a weird world we live in where there's you know battles and Twitter wars and all this stuff. <laughs> I'm really glad to have educated him. I'm, I'm so proud of my daughter. Robin is awesome. And she, she really schooled him on copyright law. And I think that's what I, I, I mean, that was my, my first goal. My second goal is, is, uh, is, uh, is getting payment. Thanks for being with us. Hey, thank you. And we'll post the image of the farting unicorn at CPR.org later today. And our invitation to Elon Musk and to Tesla stands. Tom Edwards is a potter who lives in Evergreen, and he talked with us about Tesla using his illustration Uh, and not compensating him as a result. Well, finally today, rising country star Claire Dunn grew up on a farm in the southeastern Colorado town of Two Buttes, population 43. She spent her days driving 18-wheelers and John Deere tractors, working cattle and riding horses. Dunn told us in 2016 that all that shapes her music. I was fortunate enough to... uh inherit a love of music from my parents and I think that any farm kid would tell you that long hours spent driving a tractor all day as a young kid uh, music is your companion. Dunn says her close relationship with family inspired her newest single More. She says it's for everyone out there who's ever loved somebody it's that simple. Saturday nights with a solid gold song Dashboard jukebox all night long Kisses in the dark Mm. More Sunday drives with the windows dropped Making country miles out of city blocks Middle seat in your arms Yeah, More hours in the day More time that I could stay Close as I could
Oh, that's going to be an earworm now. More is the new single from Claire Dunn of Two Buttes, Colorado. She performs at the end of the month at the Montrose County Fair and Rodeo. Thanks for spending more time with us. I'm Ryan Warner at CPR News and Colorado Matters.